Well, as uh, Stephanie said, today we are in the third week of our summer series called Tough Questions. We're looking at a different one each Sunday, and uh, we're looking at these questions because we know that they exist. There are hard questions related to life related to God, related to the Bible. And we want to be a church that takes time to to look at these questions, to investigate them, to make sure that that we as a church have good answers for tough questions and that the young people that are growing up in our church, that that they've been given an opportunity to think through these issues because we know that they are issues that are being raised in the world and that they come uh, through the the culture that we live in. And so we want to, to have an eye to that so that we can indeed provide answers from God's Word. And so it's so important. If we, if we don't do that, if we just take those, those hard questions and we, we don't address them, we, we, uh, we hold them back uh, to some degree, we know that, that down the road they can turn into to doubts, they can turn into unbelief. And so we'd rather take the time to look at these questions together. And as I said in the first week, we, we really could go much beyond just the summer, right? There's a lot of questions out there, but we're going to try to take some that I think uh, are really applicable to the age in which we're living and that I hope you'll find helpful, that they will be helpful for us as a church family, but also for our young people. The question today is, is the Bible trustworthy? And I wanted to have this one today because I knew that the, uh, the kids from Kids Church would be with us. And the, uh, the, the message is one that I, that I hope our young people will be able to connect with, that they'll be able to, to, to draw from. I, I know it's a little unique in the way in which I'm going to approach the message today, but nonetheless, I hope that there are things that might even prompt some conversations within the family uh, to help our young people as they, as they wrestle with the question on whether or not the Bible is trustworthy? How can we be assured that the Bible is sufficient? Uh, How can we go out and align our lives underneath the authority of God's Word when there are so many out there that seek to call it into question or say that it's antiquated or that it's not trustworthy? How do we respond to those those questions that can be raised? Uh, What about for those that are the opponents of the Bible, and that, uh, you know, they, they realize that if, if, they, if they can attack the reliability of Scripture, what have they accomplished? Think about for a moment, what would we have to hold on to within the Christian faith if we couldn't trust the Word of God? And so that's why it is a topic that is of utmost importance. We need to to be able to have assurance that the Bible is something that we can hold on to as trustworthy. And I know as I I ask that question for many people, uh, the answer is pretty short. Is the Bible trustworthy? Well, yes, of course it is. Move on to the next question, right? Um, Because that's that's where your faith is, and that's, that's what you have in terms of resolve. But we know that there are many out there that raise objections. And if we aren't hearing what those objections are, then we're not able to provide a response. So what I'd like to do to begin the sermon today is I'd like to raise three objections that are coming up from skeptics, and then I'd like to provide three reasonable responses. So you can almost see it as a, a point-counterpoint, so that we can at least get the idea that there are answers that are available. There are scholars uh, that, are, that are Christian scholars that are looking into the reliability of the Scripture so that we can see that there are answers. Now, we know we might, we might go into a conversation in the world, or we might turn on a History Channel documentary, or we might find ourselves in a, in a college classroom and we, we hear objections raised that maybe we've not heard before. 
And so the first thing I'd like to say is that it's okay if at times we don't have the answer at the top of our head. And so just because we're in a, in a situation where a question's raised that's new to us, is, that's not a problem. It's okay to take time to see, well, what, what, are, what is available for us to be able to look to to address this topic or to address this question? And so I'm going to try to provide some of that this morning, but I realize that it's... Uh, it's actually such a, a large topic that it, it could be a whole series in itself. In fact, entire books have been written on this. But we'll try to take just one message to give uh, some detail here as we look at these objections. The first one comes from a, a guy named Dr. Bart Ehrman. And he's, he's relatively well known as an author. Uh, one who has, has written uh, uh, objections to the reliability of Scripture. He's a professor at the University of North Carolina. And here is one of the statements he has made about the Scripture, about the Bible itself. He says, what good is it to say that the autographs or the, the original documents of the Bible were inspired? We don't have the originals. We have only error-ridden copies, so he says. And the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them, evidently, in thousands of ways. Now, if you're sitting in his class and he's making statements like that as a professor in a, in a very notable university... It would probably get your attention if you're a Bible-believing Christian to say, hey, wait a minute, I, I didn't know that we didn't have the originals. I didn't know that, that, the, that it was hundreds of years after that, that the Bible was put together. I mean, these would be statements that, that, uh, that you would think, well, wait a minute, maybe, maybe I've not been told everything, right? Or maybe he's saying some things that aren't true because there are others that have come alongside and said, no, the we, we, we may not have the originals, because thinking about it in that time period, uh, many ancient documents, you don't have the original. You have copies of them that are distributed, but we have lots of them. They didn't come up centuries after the originals. And, uh, uh, and, and just the, the premise that they are error-ridden, I mean, just think about that from a logical standpoint for a minute. If you don't have the originals, how do you know they're error-ridden, right? I mean, it just, it just in the, in, as you think about it, it just doesn't make sense. Well, he also has said this. Why was the tomb supposedly empty? Referring to the tomb of Jesus. I say supposedly because, frankly, I don't know that it was. Our very first reference to Jesus' tomb being empty is in the Gospel of Mark, written 40 years later by someone living in a different country who had heard that it was empty. How would he know? Now, again, someone that's, that's hearing that for the first time might say, well, I've been tricked. I didn't know that he lived in a different country. I thought he was an eyewitness. Well, then we have to stop and say, wait a minute. What Ehrman is proposing is, 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 is his idea. It's, 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 it's not the truth. Because we are going to be looking throughout the message today to be able to say, yes, it was eyewitnesses that wrote the Bible. It wasn't. It, so, so by attacking the authorship of the Bible, this is one of the ways that they are trying to attack the Bible as a whole. And so that's where the question of authorship is very, very important. One book that I found helpful as I've prepared the message this week. Is written by J. Warner Wallace, and it's called Cold Case Christianity. And he is involved in apologetics ministry, you know, providing a defense for the faith. But you may have seen him on, uh, on Dateline. Uh, he, is, uh, he is a very famous uh, 
homicide uh, investigator. That's, that's his legal career. That's his background as a, as a police officer and as a detective. And so he has, uh, he's really well known because of, of that. Well, uh, he has, as, as, a, as a one-time skeptic, he used his investigative skills to research the credibility of the Bible. And as a believer now in Christ, uh, working through that, he has written uh, some books, and uh, one of them is Cold Case Christianity. You may remember he came to Ellisville and spoke about five, six years ago, and uh, very well attended uh, a conference that he spoke at, uh, including a local group of atheists came out one night to hear him speak and to take part in the Q&A. So it was very interesting. But this guy is definitely on the front lines, and he has, uh, in this book, uh, referenced some ancient historians, such as Josephus and Tacitus and others, who lived in the late first century and early second century. And so he's showing that there was, there was a knowledge of who Christ was even outside of the biblical documents. There are ancient historical documents that in many ways, corroborate what the Bible is saying about who Jesus is. In fact, he makes the statement, that if all of the biblical documents had been destroyed, we would still be able to reconstruct a modest description of Jesus from these other writers, who, by the way, were not Christians. But yet they, they were historians, and they understood, uh, some of them even by interviewing eyewitnesses, that they could indeed make a description of Jesus. In fact, they said things like this. They said that he was a true historical person. He was a virtuous, wise man. He worked wonders. He accurately predicted the future. He taught his disciples. His teaching drew a large following of both Jews and Gentiles. He was identified as the Christ, also identified as the wise king of the Jews. His disciples were eventually called Christians. In fact, one of the earlier uh, uh, historians actually called them Christians or something, something that was just a little bit of a variant from that. Uh, it says that his devoted followers became a threat to the Jewish leadership. And as a result, they presented accusation, accusations to the Roman authorities. These ancient historians named Pontius Pilate is the one who condemned Jesus to crucifixion during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now again, I'm making references to historical documents that are not the Bible. I know you, what I'm saying, you're thinking, yeah, of course, we know this from the Bible. Well, these are things that are outside of the Bible that are saying that, this, that these things took place. Um, he goes on to say, early external non-Christian sources corroborate the testimony of the New Testament author. So I say that to say that when we hear Dr. Bart Ehrman and others, maybe it's a documentary on the History Channel or something, and they, and they, they seem to make these statements that are very definitive, before we just completely abandon what we think about the Bible, let's just stop and realize that there are other scholars who have also brought research to bear that give good, good examples of, of what we see regarding the, the, uh, the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture and the, the documents. There's another scholar. This is the late Geza Verm, and he was a professor at Oxford. And he said this about the Gospel of John. The so-called Gospel of John is something special and reflects the highly evolved theology of a Christian writer who lived three generations after Jesus. So part of what the skeptics are trying to do is they're trying to attack 
the author of a particular book, and they're trying to say that the book was actually written hundreds of years after Jesus. And that what in essence has happened is that these that held to the Christian faith at that time decided that they would write documents that looked like they were from eyewitnesses, a fraud. And so, so that's where these challenges to the, to, the, to the New Testament in particular are being connected to the year 325. That's when the Council of Nicaea was making an affirmation of the Scriptures, but make no mistake about it, the Scriptures were well known by then. They were already well known, and we'll talk about why that's the case. Here's what J. Warner Wallace said. While skeptics would like to claim that the Gospels were written well after the alleged life of the Apostles, and much closer to the councils that affirmed them, the evidence, says this investigator, indicates something quite different. An early dating for the Gospels. The Gospel writers appear in history right where we would expect them to appear, if they were, in fact, eyewitnesses. And these are just a couple of examples of how skeptics can be answered. And if you really want to dig into the, to the textual evidence that exists. I recommend a book called Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams. And he is, he's also one that's living in England. Uh, I believe he's Oxford trained as well. And so here you have another guy highly pedigreed that's saying, no, let's be honest and let's look at these 6,000 manuscripts and portions of manuscripts that we have. And let's see how amazingly they, they, they work together and how we, we see assurance that, that the Bible is indeed what it says it is. He goes back and gives lengthy quotations from some secular historians of the first century. And if you want to look at some primary sources, he has them there. And I was reading through the first chapter this last week as I was preparing for the message and thought, man, to, to, to really be honest and read these ancient historians uh, really calls into question how these other uh, skeptics can, can even be viewed as, as trying to be honest when they make statements that, that can... Uh, that can clearly be uh, uh, argued against. So anyway, that's just a little taste of the defense which can be given when people seek to cast a doubt on the reliability of the Bible. Well, let's look to some of those who wrote the Bible. I want to begin with Peter today. Peter was a disciple. And let's listen to how he described why he wrote what he wrote and the fact that he claims to be an eyewitness. Let's look at 2 Peter. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. He said, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. So he's talking about being at the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says this, he hears the voice say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. So these are writers who understood the Old Testament prophecy and saw it being fulfilled. He goes on to say, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this. No prophet, prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
And so this is a, this is a very important passage because he's saying, look, the authors were inspired. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These authors were also eyewitnesses who saw it. They heard it with their ears, and they wrote so that others could also understand and to hear what the gospel message was all about, to hear that the prophecies have been fulfilled. And so on this side, Peter's saying, we were eyewitnesses. On the side of the skeptic, they're trying to say, no, they're really not the authors. And now we can see why. Because if you can say they're not the authors and they weren't the eyewitnesses, all of a sudden the book of 2 Peter is called into question. And it doesn't take long before the entire New Testament or even the Bible is called in to question. So again, Peter is speaking of being an eyewitness. One of the messages that I listened to this week is one that I want to recommend to you. And I've drawn some from it today. It's by a man named Vody Bauckham. And uh, Vody has a message called, Why I Choose to Believe the Bible. And it's fantastic. It's an excellent, excellent message. Um, you, can, you can watch it online free. I think it's YouTube that, that has it. Uh, why I Choose to Believe the Bible. And he gives one of the best summary statements related to God's Word that I have ever seen. And I want to give it to you this morning. Here's what he says. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies, and they claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Now, my plan for the message today was to take those two sentences and to break it into six points. And as I looked at that, I thought, we are going to be here all day long. It's just too much. And so I originally submitted six points to be put on the screen. And then I, uh, I came back and said, well, let's just take the first three, okay? So that's my Father's Day gift to you, all right? We're just going to look at the first sentence. We're not going to look at both of them, even though I, I feel like I'm preaching half a sermon today. I mean, I just, I, how can we not talk about this latter part? But maybe, uh, maybe you can look at some more on your own. That's just kind of the, the issue with taking one question a, a week is that I've got to move through quickly. But I want us to look at this in greater detail, and I'm going to quote some more resources along the way. And again, what's my goal? I want us as a church, when we open up God's Word, to really just be reaffirmed today that this is the Word of God. And I want our young people, when they go out these doors, or maybe for the final time going off to a, to a different city or a different place, for them to go forth knowing, yes, I can build my life on this book. It's trustworthy. And yeah, I'm going to hear documentaries, and I'm going to see Da Vinci Code books, and I'm going to have all these other kinds of, of, of things that are stated but I'm going to know that there's a foundation that I can go back to that is true. So that's my goal for this. Here's the first point. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. That first word that I want to emphasize is reliable. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. And it's important that we, that we are able to, to uh, uh, look at this question long enough to where we can find that, that answer of reliability. Because as I said, if the skeptics themselves can attack the Bible as not being reliable, they know that they've won. They know that they've turned that heart away from the Christian faith because what do we have left if we don't have the Bible? It's not only a book, it's a collection. We, we have to remember that, you know, oftentimes we view it as one book, but it's really 66 books 
And it's written by a lot of different people into one cohesive message. And that itself is amazing. Um, in fact, listen to what Dominic Doan says. He says, it was written over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The authors came from a variety of backgrounds and vocations, farmers, shepherds, poets, fishermen, politicians, priests. Together, they wrote 66 different books in a dazzling array of literary genres, law, history, poetry, letters, gospels, prophecy, and wisdom literature. Just stop and think. There is no other book like this one. And when you think that these are individuals that many of them didn't even know each other, they didn't even live in the same continents or in the same time periods, and yet we look at the message of the Bible and we see a cohesive message of God's love for this world, of him bringing a, and promising a, a Messiah that would come to save people from their sins and then to see those prophecies fulfilled in the life and times of Jesus Christ. Michael Kruger wrote a book called Surviving Religion 101. And this is interesting to me because uh, uh, Michael is now a, uh, a seminary president. And he, he actually had Dr. Bart Ehrman as a student when he was at the University of North Carolina. And his daughter is now a student. Her name is Emma. And she goes to the University of North Carolina. And he wrote a book that just came out this year. And the book is a series of letters written to his daughter, Emma. And he even addresses it like, hey, Emma, dearest Emma, when you are in Dr. Ehrman's class and you hear him say a, a, B, and C, I just want you to know that there is X, Y, and Z. And I bought the book on Kindle. I, 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 I offer it to you if, if, if you're interested. It has a lot of different topics, as you might imagine, a father writing to his daughter. And, uh, and I'll be quoting it again throughout the summer. But here's how he explains the authorship of the Bible. He says, the authors not only agree on a wide variety of complex doctrinal issues, salvation, eternal life, the nature of God, the person of Christ, and so forth, but join together to tell the same overarching story of redemption in Jesus Christ from cover to cover. How can that sort of unity be explained naturalistically? Are we to believe that these authors just randomly came together to weave a single harmonious tapestry? It's hard to get four people to agree on much of anything regarding religion, not to mention 40, many of whom never knew each other. No, this is the sort of quality we would expect from a book that had a divine author. What does all this mean? It means that we come to trust the Bible because we recognize a divine voice in it, the voice of our God. And that right there is some affirmation that maybe some of us today just need to be reminded of the treasure that we have in the Word of God. This statement by, by uh, Vody Bauckham also says that it's, it's a historical document. And so that means the Bible didn't shy away from, from speaking of locations and speaking of the names of people, and even the dates. And you can go through, whether it's Old Testament or New, and you can find the dates of leaders, and you can find, you can find uh, locations. And all of that was given and can be corroborated. J. Warner Wallace said, because Christianity makes historical claims, archaeology ought to be a tool we can use to see if these claims are, in fact, true. And uh, uh, let me just give one example. John chapter 5. 
there is a, uh, a description of a body of water called the Pool of Bethesda. And uh, in this pool, it says that there are five porticos around the pool. And it's in this particular area of Jerusalem near this very specific gate. And for years, nobody knew where this Pool of Bethesda was. And so critics would say, well, here's an example. The book of John describing this location that does not exist in Jerusalem. Therefore, this must have been written many years later by someone who had no idea what, what the geography of Jerusalem was all about. That is until 1888, when in an archaeological dig, guess what was discovered? The Pool of Bethesda. Steps going in, steps coming out, five porticos all surrounding this pool. Again, one of many, many, many times that archaeology has discovered something and said, oh, there we go. The Bible was right. In fact, um, uh, some have said that there have been as many as 23,000 archaeological digs that have taken place in the name of historical accuracy, and in doing so, have time after time after time proven evident, given evidence. And there's, there's so many examples. There, there were times where people said there wasn't a, a ruler by that name at that time. And then they find an old coin, and it has a, a face of a ruler, and it has an inscription of a name. They go, oh, well, maybe there was. Well, the Bible had already said it, okay? So, so that's where the, the archaeology comes alongside as well. Pastor Dominic Doan said, the Bible is the most reliable piece of ancient literature in existence. Its legacy is one of unrivaled historic integrity. And what does he mean by that? He's, he means that all ancient documents whether they were written by uh, someone like Homer, the Iliad, and the Odyssey, right? They, they had original copies, and, and then there were handwritten copies, only way it happened back then. They were then disseminated. And so in comparing the documents of the Bible with other ancient documents, what the historians have found is that it's unparalleled. And how many documents, how many manuscripts, copies are available, and how they are so close as they are uh, as they are evaluated. In fact, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey is one of the most well-preserved documents. And there are 2,500 manuscripts. 2,500. There are 10 times that number of the Bible. And so that just puts it into perspective. And that, that was like number one, or number two, next to the Bible. Here's what Clark Pinnock says. He says, There exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies and offering so superb an array of historical data on which an intelligent decision may be made. An honest person cannot dismiss a source of this kind. And if we had time, we could stop and we could think of all of the different people who have come to faith in the Bible and in Jesus who began their search as skeptics. Maybe names like Lee Strobel come to mind, or Simon Greenleaf, the, the, uh, uh, the Harvard Law professor. And these are individuals that were skeptics, and then they dug in and looked at the evidence, and they came out saying, it's true. So we want to make sure that we see that there is indeed evidence in favor of the Bible. It's the, re the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. Secondly, it is written by eyewitnesses. And this is so important because what we are saying is that these books were written by people who claimed to have seen what was happening in those times. And they are, they are, uh, they are disciples 
of Christ. In fact, I read what Peter had to say. Let's, let's look at what John had to say. And uh, he uh, uh, says this at the beginning of 1 John, the letter 1 John, near the end of the New Testament. Here's what he says. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Could, could, could he not be more descriptive? We, we've seen it. We've heard it. We've felt it. We are eyewitnesses that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. They are motivated. They want other people to, to, to hear the good news that they themselves were able to experience. It goes on in verse 4 to say, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So again, these New Testament authors, they are claiming to be eyewitnesses. And so if it's, if it's stated that these books were not written by them, then what's happening is when the authorship is, is, is attacked, the, the whole book really falls apart from that point. And so that's why these, these manuscripts are so important that we're able to look back on. Let me give you a quote from a, uh, a fellow pastor here in Missouri by the name of Ken Parker. He teaches over at Midwestern Seminary as an adjunct. He made, he made a, an interesting comment, not only about eyewitnesses, but he also makes another point. He said, the followers of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, Jude, James, they write letters and historical accounts to churches and friends throughout the Roman Empire. Many of these individuals here were obviously eyewitnesses, all but, but Luke. And it says, they quote from all but eight of the what? The Old Testament books. And so when you think about that, the, the Old Testament was a settled matter by then. They knew which books of prophecy, which books of the law. And so they were quoting from them. And even Jesus, we could take a whole time just to think about how Jesus quoted from the Old Testament and referred to it as the scriptures, the law and the prophets. And so, again, uh, even though I'm spending most of my time here on the New Testament today, I wanted to make that mention about the Old Testament as well. Well, here's the third point. Not only were they eyewitnesses, but they wrote during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And I thought that was a brilliant statement in that sentence, because what he was saying is, in essence, they were eyewitnesses and they were writing something down. But there were also other eyewitnesses who could have done what? Who could have tried to falsify their claims, who could have tried to, to speak against what they were saying. But what the historical record shows is that even those who were not believers and followers of Christ were corroborating what was being written down by the eyewitnesses. Let's look at what Luke had to say. Luke was not an eyewitness. He was a historian, the physician, right? And he, he listened to Peter and possibly Mary as he wrote an account. And here's what he said. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know 
the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So here's Luke saying, I've taken time. Now, we know he was also being, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and guided by, by the Lord in this, but, but he's, he's making a statement that, that he's been careful to record the truth. Again, he's making strong claims regarding his investigation. Paul also spoke about the other eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he is saying that he's passed on to us what is most important, what he received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Look at verse 6. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. So when Paul is writing this letter to Corinth, he is realizing that 500 people saw the resurrected Christ, and many of them were still alive. Again, they could have disputed what he wrote. But again, what does the record show? The record shows a lot of corroboration with what was being said. Well, let me give you two other arguments very quickly that the skeptics sometimes make. Vody mentions these in his message. One of them is an argument that the translations of the Bible that we have are translations of translations of translations. And that because of that, it's like the game of telephone. Did anybody play the game of telephone when they were a kid? Some of our kids have played the game of telephone. Okay, good. All right. So it would be like I would start on this side and I'd go over to Luke and I'd say something to him and he would whisper it in the ear and then I'd come over here on this side after however long it took and hear what message it was and we would not be surprised that the message would be a little different, right? And some are saying, well, that's how we've got the Bible. I'm reading today from the Christian Standard Bible. Maybe it's because the Christian, this didn't happen, but this would be the line of thinking, that the Christian Standard Bible people must have looked at the the New American Standard, and they looked at the Revised Standard, and they, maybe they looked at the NIV, or maybe they looked at the Living Bible, and they looked at the, the King James Version, and, and that these translations were made after translations, but that's not how translations work. You go back to the earliest manuscripts, and so the, 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 the translators of the, the, the CSB, or the New American Standard, or the NIV, they're going back to the Greek. And they're going back to the Hebrew and the Aramaic. So it's not like one person's sharing a message that just goes all the way through. It's like the same person. I go to Luke, and then I go to you, and then I go to you. And that's more how this works. And so, again, you hear that argument raised, and it just takes a little effort to say, wait a minute, that's not how the Bible translations are put together. Others have said, well, the Bible translations were put together in the, about 300 or 325 A.D., hundreds of years after the lifetime of Jesus. The problem with that is, well, first of all, it's not true because there's ancient manuscripts and ancient historians that lived in a particular time. Let me give you one example. A guy that uh, is uh, by the name of Ignatius of Antioch, he was born in 35, year 35, died in year 107. And he wrote a lot of letters, and they're called the letters of Ignatius. He died in 107. It's interesting that in his letters, he quoted from Matthew, Luke, John, most of Paul's letters, including 2 Timothy. He quoted from Acts, Hebrews, James, and 1 Peter. He clearly, in that, in that late first century, had access to all of what we now see as 
New Testament books. So anyway, I, I just think that, that for us to be able to, to hear those arguments and to be able to know, wait a minute, just because it's a documentary on a show or just because someone sold millions of books doesn't necessarily mean that they are propagating what is true. And so we want to get to what the facts are. And thankfully, God has raised up people that are able to do the research and the work. And I hope that what it can do is it can help us see, if anything today, that there are answers to these objections of the skeptics. Um, as we wrap up, I want to give you Vody's quote just one more time. We didn't get a chance to do all of it. But he said, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. Wouldn't it have been fun to go to Isaiah 53 and hear how the suffering servant was being described 700 years before he was born? Or wouldn't it have been interesting to drop off in Psalm 22, which was written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, and by the way, written in a time in which Roman crucifixion had not even come on the scene, and yet remarkably describes it. See, th th those are the kinds of prophecies that we could spend time looking at to go, wow, this is indeed a special book. And we see how they were specific prophecies. They claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Well, some say, well, what about the scientific method? Can't we use that to prove, in the, prove these historical events? And Vody makes the point that you can't use the scientific method to prove historical events, not even and uh, something like who was the first president of the United States because the scientific method says things must be observable, measurable, and what? Repeatable, right? So you can't take that type of inquiry and bring it to an historical event. He says what you use is the evidentiary method. That's what you use in court. You talk to witnesses who are reliable, whose stories are corroborated. Reliability of sources corroborated witnesses, can they be falsified? What does that look like? Looks like 66 books written by 40 authors, most of whom never knew each other, living on three different continents, writing in three different languages, living over a 1,500-year span while giving a unified message that's been verified through archaeology, internal consistency, and external corroboration from people like Josephus or uh, many others that he mentions. The person who chooses to believe the Bible, I'll say this, you are standing on firm, a firm foundation. You need not worry about the criticism coming from skeptics. So with that in mind, I'd like to close the sermon with a quote from someone who's only known as anonymous. But listen to what he or she has written about the Bible. This book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. 
Christ is its grand subject, our good, its design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Dear friends, that's the word of God. And we are blessed to have been able to receive it. Now, may we give God thanks for preserving it for us. And may he allow it to equip us as a church that our members would would know that we can trust the Bible and that our young people can know while they're in these walls and beyond that the word of God is indeed reliable, reliable enough upon which one can build their life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could spend time today not only in your word, but thinking about your word. God, we thank you that that your word is true. We thank you that it is a firm foundation upon which we can stand. And Lord, we pray that you would use your word to guide our lives to build our faith, to guide us in this life that we're living. Father, when the the echoes and the cries of the culture and the skeptics come, Lord, may you help us. May you help us to, to answer the objections. May you help us to be to be firm in our convictions. And Lord, we know that all of this is only possible because of the truthfulness of your word. God, we pray that you will bless our church family as we seek to be equipped in your word. And we pray that you will bless our young people. Lord, may they hide your word in their hearts. Lord, may their faith develop. And God, may it guide them in the days that are ahead. Father, for any among us today that may have been on the side of skeptic. Lord, may you do a work in their heart today. May you help them to to consider what's been presented and use it as a way to draw someone to you today. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that it's alive. And we pray, Father, that you will use it in our lives and in our community right now. A world that so desperately needs the truth a world that is hurting, a world that is fearful, a world that needs the light of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the boys and girls that participated in VBS this last week. For those, Lord, that were able to be taught your word, God, may you use it to surround their hearts and minds and guide them closer to you. Father, we thank you again for this time. We pray now that as we reflect upon your word, that your Holy Spirit would be at work. We pray this now in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all of God's people said.